On this episode of the Raise Podcast, I caught up with Howard Hevener, Executive Director of Annual Programs at the University of California, Berkeley. From humble beginnings as a substitute student caller, Howard has emerged as one of the leaders of our sector. He's one of the few professionals I've met who's managed alumni relations, annual giving, advancement services, and been responsible for a major gift portfolio. The six-goal framework he's implementing at Cal is the kind of idea you might just want to copy and steal. And I'm going to make a quick plug. If you're enjoying this series, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have suggestions for how we might improve the format or recommendations for stellar guests, please shoot me an email at brent at evertrue.com. Thanks for listening. And here we go. Welcome to the show, Raise listeners. It is a privilege to host Howard Hevener, who is the new Executive Director of Annual Programs at UC Berkeley and the University of California System. Howard, welcome to Raise. Thanks, Brent. Happy to be here. Happy to, to have a chance to catch up. Well, uh, we have lots to cover today. Definitely want to dive right in, but I got to ask first, who are you and how did you end up in your role at Berkeley? Who am I? That's, that's a very existential question for me. Um, well, I, how I ended up here, um, I've been doing annual giving work now for, I think it's 20 years. I started out, my joke has been, uh, I started at the most entry-level point of fundraising you possibly can. I was a substitute student caller. So I had to convince other students to take the day off in order for me to get my shifts. Um, well, let's and, just break that down for a minute because this is, this is a big reveal in the Rays podcast. I've never heard about a substitute student caller. Yeah. Does that mean you interviewed with all of the other student callers? Yeah, yeah. Didn't quite make the cut. Exactly right. But you got the nod to, to, to ride the bench, basically. I was the backup. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Brent, that is exactly what happened. I was the... I had actually a traditional like telemarketing. It was that at that window of time and in, in, I was in Iowa, there was the credit card sales telemarketing firms were everywhere. And so that's what I was doing. I found my first fundraising job. And I think they were concerned that I was going to bring the, the kind of fast talk, you know, uh, telemarketing sales to it. And then, uh, yeah, so they, they, uh, they said I, I, I was maybe good enough, and so uh, they hired me. Their, their strategy on trying to keep the seats full, I mean, I think a lot of us moved at some point to like overbooking call centers to do that, like kind of like airlines would do. Uh, so instead of doing that, though, they just had on call three or four substitute student callers, and so I was one of those. And so I had to, I got real familiar with like all the specials at the different restaurants and bars in town. I'd be like, hey, it's, you know, there's a special at the sports column and uh, uh, they'd be like, we'll have to work. I'm like, funny thing. I can help you out with that. And all you have to do is just get me, you know, get me when I get to the meet you up later. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's how I started my career is I started my career as a uh, substitute student caller. So um, it is a, it is a, it's been a long path from there, but it is certainly where I started. So let's just go back. Uh, what, what year was that? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. That would have been 1997. So any memorable conversations with donors from 1997 or any early uh, either exciting moments or frustrating moments or even just general themes? I was, I've never been a substitute student caller, so I'm just trying to it, put it myself in your, in, in your state of mind then. It was the first call, the first call where I talked to a donor who was actually willing to talk to me. Right. And you're, you're in your call center and, and, you know, and you're, you're making those calls, you're dialing and smiling the whole thing, right. All the cheesy lines. Uh, 
Um, and the first time I had a donor who ended up not giving, by the way, um, but it was the first time I'd actually had a real conversation with a donor. And I had just had this feeling like I went home that day and I was sitting in my, my part, my college apartment, with my roommates with my friends since high school. And I was like, it's what I'm going to do. This wow. is what I'm going to do. And so, um, so yeah. So why know, do you think that is? It was because I've always, I mean, at one point in like right out of high school, at one point I sold women's shoes, right? Like I'd always done sales. I'd always had an ability to do sales, but it was always to the benefit of myself or the benefit of the organization and not to the benefit of something better, something greater. And I think in that first conversation and I was trying to, right, I'm trying to also like trying to get to make a gift. It's really important, but I'm also learning their narrative and their story about why, why Iowa mattered to them. And that that ability to help them, even though they didn't say yes, but that ability to be that conduit for them to have those memories and have those experiences and reconnect to their alma mater in a way that was authentic and that if it had worked, would yield a gift to the betterment of my experience as a student, but the student experience of students after me, like that was, you know, that was powerful to me and it felt better, right? It felt better than, you know, Let's be honest. I was selling credit cards at the, at the cold call telemarketing and that never felt good. Um, but it, you had to do what you had to do to pay the bills. And so, so I think that was what it was, Brent. I think it was that opportunity to really just like, you know, that feeling of connecting people for a greater purpose than just the financial benefit. I love it. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, we share that. I, I share that experience. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't feel maybe one degree removed from the level uh, of being a conduit, but, but certainly we feel like uh, connecting uh, people is at the core of what we need to do, what every vendor in this space needs to do. There has to be that aspect. Uh, and so you kind of uh, caught that bug. You, you felt that uh, ability to both sell and engage people, but around something that you personally really believed in. Yeah. And that led you to, uh, actually pursue a career in advancement. I don't know if it was referred to commonly as advancement at that time, but what was kind of the the next step to move beyond the substitute realm into the full-time uh, role? Right. Well, someone had to quit so I could get a seat. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, through my student experience, you know, what's so funny is I learned years later um, that my first promotion in my career was actually a pathway to fire me. Um, I was, a, I was a student caller who had a lot of ideas, but I, I was, I didn't know how to say them yet in ways that were respectful or tactful. Um, and so I had a lot of frustration when they weren't heard and I was very like, rah, right. And so, uh, I learned, uh, years later, the, the person who was the annual giving director there and I, um, are still good friends. Um, and she told me one time that they would actually have three or four staff members, full-time staff members discussing about how to fire me. Um, and so their strategy was to give me more responsibility. Uh, and so, right, more rope kind of thing, right? And so, uh, so I took that um, and then I just rebuilt the systems. Um, I finally gave me a conduit for my ideas to be manifested in a way that um, allowed me to figure out how to work through the system. So I went through that process as a student, rebuilt kind of all the back end stuff. Um, after I graduated, I stayed on at Iowa where I, I basically took over a three or four year period, I took that call center and just rebuilt the whole thing piece by piece as I took over more and more of it. And I had great mentoring and great people who uh, really enabled me to, to grow and express myself through the work. Um, 
and we really had some amazing, uh, some amazing results. Uh, at one point, I made a bet with that call center that if we hit a certain amount of money for the year, I would dye my hair blonde. Uh, so in the world, there's definitely, when I had hair, uh, there was definitely photos in the world of me as a blonde. It's not a good look. It's not one I would want to repeat, but it does exist. Um, and, uh, but we, it was in 2001, actually, it was the, the year, it was right after 9-11 that we hit the goals. Um, and so it was, that's always been kind of a meaningful experience to see that group of students come together to basically double the production in the call center at the same number of seats available. Um, and it was, it's really, you know, I joke sometimes about where I learned management was to have the greatest learning lab I could because I had this contained set of 24 students on a nightly basis. And if any of them are listening, I apologize because you were definitely my test subjects as I try to figure out how to be a better manager. Uh, and so you tried all kinds of different things. And um, it was just a, it was a really a meaningful and kind of fundamental experience of my career. So, um, yeah. And it, and it launched you uh, down this path where you developed this expertise, uh, avoided getting fired, uh, and were able to then go from one large big in uh, a big 10 institution, your alma mater, where there obviously was a deeply personal connection and try to take that playbook to the university of Michigan. And I'm just curious what that was like. I think, you know, one of the the obvious themes that comes up with advancement leaders uh, is that oftentimes to grow in your career, you don't just get to go straight up an org chart. And there is a lot of movement from one institution to another. Uh, And I am curious given how connected you were as a student, presumably passionate about the Iowa mission, yeah, what yeah. is it like to then jump to a competitor uh, who you've been rooting against in sporting events since you were you know, in high school to uh, then effectively have to bring your playbook and help them sell their mission? Right. Well, that's where higher ed is special in this way, right? It's, cause it's not, we may be competing in the field, but we're, we're, we're working together to, create better knowledge and better effort. And we all want to do the same thing, which is educate young people, right? Young, educate students. So what is what is true when you start to go working for places that aren't your alma mater is that it becomes less personal and more able to look at things from a truly business concept. So you're able to evaluate things out of the context of the cultural bias that exists in all of our institutions about things that we continue to do because it's the institutional way. Um, you know, and, and the one I think to is like the Penn State way, because uh, that's a that's that's a, a statement you hear that frequently, right? And so it allows you to to be an outside voice and say, but does this is this the right path? Is this the best path? And sometimes it is the best path, and sometimes it's not. But you know, it's so easy for all of us when we're so attached personally to the work to miss that ability to really critically evaluate everything we're doing to make sure we are being as productive and as equitable as we can be for the institution as a whole. So um, so went to work for Michigan. Um, really my deal when I went to work with Michigan is I, I followed my boss from Iowa to Michigan, who um, again, still still one of my uh, favorite people in the world. Who is that? Let's give a shout out. Yeah, Chris Meyer. She's Chris Meyer is, uh, I think she's the executive director of donor relations. I think that's her title at Penn State now. And Chris has been uh, a friend and a mentor for so many years um, and uh, a lot of my, uh, a lot of reasons why I ended up having a career is because Chris uh, looked past my, uh, my quick mouth and uh, heard the ideas and helped me uh, learn how to say things in a way that um, didn't get me kicked out of rooms. Um, and so, uh, 
so I followed her to Michigan and, and our deal was the entire time that I was going to come to Michigan and spend two years working on that call center situation, which that was in a, a place that it needed just uh, needed a fresh perspective. And so I spent two years doing that and getting them set up to be in a better place than they were when I got there, um, really established some practices. Um, and then in life circumstance changes, um, ended up uh, joining DePaul University in Chicago for, for a brief time and quickly decided living in Chicago was not right for me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, miraculously had the opportunity to go to work at Penn State for um, Peter Weiler, um, who a uh, lengthy career at Penn State, worked at Ohio State, um, New Hampshire, and, and Maryland, um, and was a, a, a great friend and mentor for me. Um, and just that he, uh, he gave me opportunities at points where uh, I wasn't really sure that I was qualified. <laughs> and so, um, but he, uh, he believed that working together, we could figure out a better way to do the thing. And so, um, so spent about five years at Penn State, where we did a lot of we did a really, really really cool things. We 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 did a lot of very structural things. Um, Penn State's a, an amazing program with an amazing alumni base, um, and I was very fortunate to kind of pick up the work that had been done before me and just kind of create that next evolution of that work there, um, which was really just about how we viewed the relationship with the different units and how we um, the focuses we had, and so. Um, it was a, uh, it was a good, it was a good five years. Um, and so, so yeah, so that was, um, that was a, that was a, that was a great experience. And so, and yeah. I got, I'm actually, in the, I actually am a Nittany Lion now. So I have a degree from Penn State as well. So tell me about that. You know, we often are, are asked just how do you think about continuing ed in advancement and uh, what program did you do? Would you recommend it and why? I did uh, I have a master's in higher education administration from Penn State and it was a, uh, you know, I think that like all people early in their career, I, I get asked this actually. Um, I first started doing it because I thought it was going to like, well, it's going to, it's going to get me a promotion, right? It's going to this thing. And, it, and it's not, it certainly does not hurt, you know, to have that certification or have that, that on my, my resume doesn't hurt. Most importantly, my grad experience and any continuing educational experience I have had really helped me in thinking about how to do the work. It's not that I learned all these amazing history and concepts and frameworks that I apply every day, but it challenged me to think about the work in a way that the day-to-day -day work doesn't challenge you, right? Like when you're in the day-to-day of it, you're just running hard trying to do the next thing. And to be able to, on a, you know, taking a class at a time, step back, you know, and spend two hours in a classroom talking about the theory of change and the theory of higher education administration and management helped me to reframe the work I was trying to do in my workplace. And so whenever I have early career professionals say to me, like, what certification should I get? What degree should I get? I always stop. In fact, I just did this the other day. I just stop and say, what are you interested in? Because ultimately the, the degree or the certification, unless it's something technical, like a gift planning certification, I don't know that it really matters. What matters is that it's something that you're passionate about or is excited about and that process of learning that we all believe in that you are you know that you're engaged in that that's that's where the growth is at that's what the degree or certification stands for um you know again with the exception of things that are very technical um but you know so anyway so that's that's kind of um it took me though uh it took me 10 years 
or eight, it took me eight years because I was at Penn State. And so I started about three years into Penn State at, um, on this master's degree. And then when I went to UC Santa Cruz, University of California in Santa Cruz, I, um, I didn't work on it for a while. So I had to, but then I eventually, I finished that degree um, in distance um, because I came to a point where I got the notification of like, if you don't proceed your coursework, all these credits will go away. So I was like, all right, gotta make this happen. So, um, so yeah, so I, I finished the rest of it from, from Santa Cruz. I did notice, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, but when I saw that you got your master's degree from 2009 to 2017, that did stand out a bit, yeah. but, uh, but you got there. You just, you just gotta take a gap sometimes. You just gotta, you got, some people have gap years. I had a gap five years, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you did that in concert with the role, you made the move to UC Santa Cruz. And I guess, I'm just curious, there was this sort of common thread, basically, save for the time at DePaul, Big Ten public yeah. university uh, had mentors that were sort of helping bring you along. You developed a playbook, you implemented it, you developed it at Iowa, you implemented it at Michigan. It sounds like you did that and more in, in a broader purview at Penn State. And then you went down this path at UC Santa Cruz, which won its other side of the country. Um, but you also are one of the only people that I, I can recall meeting where I believe you've had experience as a substitute student caller, uh, running telefunds, running an annual giving program, leading an alumni association, leading an advancement services shop, managing a portfolio. I mean, you really got uh, what haven't you done um, between that initial role and your time at Santa Cruz and, and what, I guess, inspired you to to take that leap and could you have ever envisioned just how much you would cover during that time period at Santa Cruz? No, I couldn't have. Um, you know, honestly, at, as I was at Penn State and I was thinking about um, what I wanted to do next, um, I, I decided that I wanted to get out of my comfort zone, right? Then the little the foyer to DePaul, the little kind of little pathway off to DePaul there for a minute. I'd been in this comfort zone of Big Ten, Big Ten football, Big Ten, you know, the, the large public, really well-established programs. And I was like, how do I, you know, uh, how do I challenge myself? How do I test whether these theories and ideas I have actually have validity, right? Like, how do I, how do I get out of that space where I'm measuring growth in, in 0.5% change and, and maybe be someplace where I can, you know, make growth in substantial ways? Um, and so I took the job at UC Santa Cruz for two reasons. One, because it was as far outside that comfort zone as I possibly could get. And the role, they wanted someone to come in and combine the alumni relations work with the annual giving work um, and create kind of more of an engagement portfolio. Um, and so that was the initial role I had there. Um, and part of that role was planning the 50th anniversary celebration at UC Santa Cruz. So I spent about three years on that process. Um, and learned a lot about how to organize a campus community, a lot about how to engage a lot of different stakeholders, um, sometimes probably too many stakeholders, um, but uh, we really had a, a really uh, fantastic uh, 50th anniversary experience. Um, as that project kind of closed out, there was some turnover at Santa Cruz that allowed me to pick up some additional duties as assigned. And so that was the advancement services portfolio so I spent a couple of years also working on that, working with um, trying to move forward with some conversations around how do we 
Um, how do we look towards a new um, enterprise, you know, database system, um, trying to again, modernize, trying to kind of work through some of the change management, build relationships. Um, then through another set of kind of circumstance changes at Santa Cruz, um, what they asked me to do is really think about the health of the pipeline and how do you measure the trajectory of a donor? Um, and well, that's actually where I took it um, was to try to figure out how to measure the health, the trajectory of a donor and, it, and how to create a, a, you know, a pipeline health index. Like how do we, how do we know if we have a healthy pipeline when you talk to people around the country and, and, and to a person, I don't, and maybe Brent, maybe you've talked to somebody who hasn't expressed this. Almost every conversation I have with anyone about pipeline, they'll say, oh man, our pipeline's bad. And uh, what, a, I don't know, you know, it's bad. And so then I started saying like, well, how are we measuring that? Are you measuring that? And they're like, no. Like, so all of our data, all our evidence is anecdotal. And so I started using some of the um, models that were baked into a platform we're using at Santa Cruz to do um, a comparison, a year to year comparison of change in scores and then score the differentials to be able to try to develop an index so we could say, okay, we have a pipeline index, I'm just making a number of six. And we want to be at a seven. To be at a seven, here are the things that impact that model. So we need to increase our efforts in these ways um, in order to improve where we're at. To move us out of that anecdotal space and into the space of actual measurable change. If we're gonna, if we're gonna try to change something, we need to know what it is we're measuring. Otherwise, we're just right lighting money on fire and saying, yeah, we're doing great things. Um, and so, um, so that's that's really. And then through that process and that change in the pipeline health, I took on. Um, managing some major gift staff, as well as um, doing more work of myself. Um, the entire time there, I worked at the foundation trustees, some of our largest donors, as well as the alumni council. Um, I had to play a lot of, got to wear a lot of hats there. Um, but uh, it was, it was the way I understand way I can compare it to is like going, going to a school like that, that is uh, earlier in this development when it comes to advancement. Um, just a lot of opportunity to do a lot of different things. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot of things in creative ways because the expectations aren't the reliance on some of the money that is built in at places like Penn State and Cal is different at some place like Santa Cruz because they haven't seen that history yet. So there we were able to do some things, particularly for a giving day where we, you know, would have 175 projects um, and only like four of them were actual quote unquote annual funds. Um, and it really allowed me an opportunity to test some concepts about how do you use uh, mass volunteer engagement to drive giving that doesn't marry itself to the traditional, you know, class agent annual commitment to be a volunteer program. And so um, we found a lot of success there in an institution that um, the culture of philanthropy is uh, uh, immature or early. Um, and we found a lot of ability to really drive that through this kind of mass engagement of a large number of projects and a large number of volunteers. Um, and so it was a really, um, it was really transformational experience to, to think about all that. So also I met my wife in Santa Cruz. And so uh, uh, that also will always hold a special place in my heart. So uh, my, uh, my number one banana slug. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the banana slug is the UC Santa Cruz mascot for those yeah, who aren't. Yeah. And over an eight-year run there, wore a lot of hats, uh, but eventually uh, came to the conclusion that you were uh, interested in, in taking that next step. And I'm just curious, was it kind of a no-brainer to 
pursue the opportunity at Cal. Obviously, you knew the system at least uh, somewhat in that context. You knew California. But uh, how do you think about at that point in your career, how broad uh, of a search you might consider relative to being highly targeted in that next step? So I did, um, you know, I, by my nature, I'm just going to tell you the thing, right? I did a lot of searching and I looked at a lot of jobs that were much, that were much stretchier jobs. And it wasn't, my, my experiences weren't translating in a way that I was hoping that they would. Um, and and I, I really kind of last summer really stopped for a minute and kind of was really, really evaluating what it was that was important to me in my next role and the role after that. Um, and just by happenstance, I got a call from my current associate vice chancellor, Lachelle Blakemore, who is, if you've been doing annual giving for a while, you know, Lachelle, um, a great partner, a great thought leader, um, and someone who I highly respect. And Lachelle gave me a call and said, Hey, we're, we've got this opening <laughs> and, um, and we're trying to figure out how to make some big organizational changes around the idea of annual support at Cal. And we need someone to come in who can move quickly, who can take the work that's been here before already, that's been moving on that trajectory and figure out how to really shift the culture. Um, and that, you know, going, going back to, to some of the other jobs I've taken and the things that inspire me or things that excite me, that's the stuff that I live for, right? Like give me a big gnarly project and just say, figure it out. Um, and, um, and so when Lachelle and I started talking, I was like, all right, you know, and I was in this process where I've been kind of looking and trying to figure out my next step. And, and, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought about it, I was like, this is, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to come someplace like Cal and, you know, make cultural change around something that um, could be just incredibly impactful to the institution. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so um, I, I dutifully submitted my application and, and went through the process and was very grateful and fortunate that I got the call and Lachelle said, want to come up? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, so. so you were not a stranger to large public institutions, right. but the scale of the opportunity, the scale mm -hmm. of the community at Cal is really unique, uh, even within that landscape. And how do you uh, even get a handle on just how big the place is, how uh, many different pockets of opportunity there can be? What is what has your kind of experience been like since you joined in November of 2019? So I approach this more in the way of consume, trying to figure out what the most important thing is now, right? Like if I try to consume the entirety of the structure of the, of this campus, I would never get anywhere. I would, it would be, I would be able to take action in years, not months or weeks. Right? So what I've kind of done is I've stopped and said, okay, let's categorize a different type of work that's happening around annual support. Where is, the, where is it most structured to least structured? Let's focus on figuring out the most structured part and what that vision might be. And then we can start the process of going through and having the less structured conversations, those places where they have shadow databases, those places where they're using, um, you know, uh, email platforms that aren't connected to the institution in a way. Like we need to have our central game and our core functions 
most as, as locked in as we possibly can before we start to try to tackle the things that are going to be a little hairier, right? Like I don't have the resources to take on the entirety of the institution. So right. how am I going to position tools and knowledge base and all of that for these parts that are, are less controlled? And so, um, I, um, so I'm starting or I have started with kind of like these core function, this core kind of space of let's secure the largest number of undergrad alumni for what we're trying to do. Let's focus on how do we illustrate the biggest impact of a new vision. Um, and let's do that. And then we'll go through and we can begin to kind of, you know, that door to door, knock on doors and say, are you doing this work? Is it effective? I may have a more effective thing for you. How can we partner together? Um, and, uh, but that's the only way, you know, when I got here, what I started saying is this is not a structural change. This is a cultural change. I think that would be very easily to say, looking at what we're trying to do and creating a greater central, uh, central strength um, and people to say, well, it's a structural change. It's just changing, changing where, you know, lines point and numbers come in, et cetera. But it, it, it's not, we don't have, we're in a public hiring institution that's incredibly complex and we're not going to get a mandate that everyone reports to a central person. So what we have to do is figure out how to create a culture around the conversation that allows everyone to be bought in. Um, and that is, it's, it's true collaboration. And sometimes in true collaboration, you got to start at the, what's the, what is the, what is the point closest to the work that you can agree to, right? So my kind of opening statement is, I think we can all agree that together we want to raise more money for Cal. And if we can all agree with that, we can, we can get to where, where we find a, a, a workable solution. But we got to start with that highest level of agreement that we're all here to raise the most money possible for Cal. Um, if we can agree with that, we're, we, we, can, we can find a path. One of the things that struck me in our uh, recent discussion prior to this podcast was that you, while still being relatively uh, new to the position, new to the institution, right, where you're still literally getting to know people, and yeah. probably will be uh, for all of time uh, at an institution of that size. But uh, you've, you've been able to really start to frame up a set of goals yeah. that uh, I think are well synthesized and probably help you uh, avoid having to sort of tell this massive multi-year vision or to really, I don't know, talk right. about turning the Titanic versus having six actionable themes yeah. that you can then go beyond, hey, we want to, uh, we all agree, we can all agree we want to raise more money for Cal. And here's my point of view on the six areas okay. of focus. And I'd love to get your take on both what those uh, six areas of focus are, how you thought about framing those goals. Uh, doesn't mean everybody in the podcast should go take these six goals and make them their goals, but I think they might be able to benefit from the, the pretty rapid process you went to kind of understand the landscape, start to develop a point of view, develop six goals and, right. and really move forward quickly. Well, I think that, so yeah, absolutely. So one, let me acknowledge, I'm super fortunate that before I got here, there had been an external assessment of the annual support community. And I was able to take that information along with some initial conversations and really begin to develop um, three kind of pieces of a, of a really kind of initial kind of strategic planning process. One of the six goals, and the six goals um, really are, first of all, is to uh, increase the number of undergrad alumni donors, which is, a, um, which is a spot for many large public institutions 
we're seeing a lot of struggles in, in, in how many undergrad alumni donors we have. If you look at the data across the country, you can, you can see this. Uh, second is how do we shorten the time? Really quick on the first one. Yeah. That alone uh -huh. could be the whole, I mean, that could be the goal. I mean, you could just have that one goal and that alone would be difficult uh, to achieve. Um, but there is more. I'm just curious on that spectrum of caring about undergraduate alumni donor count versus not. You clearly do. I sure. think other peers are starting to, frankly, wave the white flag and, and stop chasing that metric, but not not the case at Cal. Why? Um, well, so the question I ask myself about it is, are we seeing problems of undergrad alumni donor counts because they don't give? or because we're not talking to them the right way. And I think if you look at the data on millennials and on Gen Z, they're giving. They're not giving to us necessarily, but they're giving. So, so what if we changed our framework? What if we changed how we approach the conversation? I think this is where you and I started talking a lot more as well is, so traditionally annual giving, and, and I'm gonna say something that uh, for most annual giving directors will be politically a nightmare. So I acknowledge that. But if we, if we stop thinking in the terms of our academic structure and loyalty-based construct of relationships and recognize that our current alumni, younger alumni population live in a different world than we lived in even 20 years ago, and begin to think about how do we reflect to our alumni that we know them, that we actually know who they are, what they care about, and where, where they are. And so instead of talking to them about, hey, in 1985, you got a psychology degree, and it was a really great experience. Don't, want you, don't you want other people to get psychology degrees? Instead of talking about that, what if we talked to them about we know that you've taken that psychology degree and you have become a leader in the marketing field. Cal has a top tier marketing program. Do you want to support future marketers so you have a better class of employees to hire? Do you have a better class uh, cultural conversation around the work or around you know, interest? We see that you support a whole list of, of you know, uh, nonprofits that are all environmentally oriented. And we have an entire school dedicated to the advancement of that, even though you have a chemistry degree. So it is, um, I mean, let's talk about us. You've got a journalism degree from Iowa. Yeah. I studied Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian at Brown. And we're talking about advancement innovation. What did you, what did you think you're going to do with a Spanish, Portuguese? And what was the last one? Italian. Italian. What did you think you were going to do with that degree? Can we just stay focused on the task? <laughs> uh, I think fair, fair. that was all underneath the international relations umbrella. Uh, I got I it. Loved, uh, yeah, I, I had some aspirations around international uh, yeah. business, travel. Um, I don't know. Okay. And uh, here we are. And You're I think eating. that being said, yeah. it's funny because I, I literally, I have been getting emails from the, uh, the Watson Institute at Brown, which is the international center's, uh, building an organization. I spent a lot of time there as an undergrad. Uh, and I've just been getting emails for, you know, 20 years from the Institute. And I, and I think like two weeks ago, I finally just unsubscribed, which I felt a little sad to do. It felt wrong in a certain regard. I mean, there's a million other ways I'm connected to Brown. 
Um, but I just couldn't keep getting the emails because it's so different from, you know, who I, you know, who I am today. And I think it is reflective of some of the themes we've talked about. We just, um, we were working with a, with a large institution, large partner institution, looking at just the, the uh, ability to keep career information up to date, period. Yeah. Just right. having the fact that everybody knows what their alumni studied. Right. Not everybody knows who their alumni are today. Right. And uh, we found that of recent job changes within alumni population, 99% uh, of those changes were not reflected in the donor database. Now, yeah. it doesn't mean that with a reunion cycle or an append service down the road, we might eventually get there. But the lag time mm -hmm. in having an accurate common data set is so uh, extended and challenging that I think that's why we maybe just revert to, well, you studied international relations, you studied journalism, and let's just market what we know as opposed to obsess about what we don't know. Well, it's, it's daunting. I'm not going to lie. I'm talking to my team here about how do we do this. And it is a daunting question about how do we figure out how, what, who a half a million people are today versus what we know. But I think the point, and, and, and I'm and give, giving you hard time because I enjoy it, but also because you were what, 18, 19, 20 years old when you decided that, that was what you're going to do. I think about the things that I thought I was going to do at 18, 19, 20 years old and is not connected at all to the human being I am today in many ways. And so I think that's the little bit of this disconnect we've had for years. And that's why I, that's why I want to challenge us to think about undergrad alumni donors in a different way, because I think part of the challenge has been that we've been resource constrained into this bucket of using the data we have available instead of stopping and saying to yourself, well, what's the ideal? And then how do we work back from that ideal into where we are now and finding the right partners uh, to help us help us determine what that path forward can look like. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, but I think that, I think that is the perfect example though of, of how, you know, we're using data based on something that so many of our alums did when they were barely formed, their brains were still forming, right? Like we're not, we're not fully matured at that point. We haven't really determined who we are. And, I, and admittedly, I have some friends who they have their journalism degree and they've done journalism, right? Not many of them, but I have some, right? But I've got many of them that are doing sales, computer, like programming, like fundraising. And so how do we, how do we speak to who they are today versus who are assumptions based on an old data point? Totally. And I think we will come back to that theme in this conversation. I did uh, take you on a bit of a tangent there as we were, we only got to goal number one out of the six. Uh, so you're going to attack undergraduate alumni participation and what are the other five things? I don't, I don't say participation because that's a dirty word in my house. Sorry, donor count. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's a whole nother rant that we can go down. Uh, but, uh, However, I, I actually would argue um, because right, larger class sizes, it makes participation essentially a, a lost cause in some contexts. Uh, sure. But I don't think that should be an excuse to accept a declining donor count. Exactly right. Net change is the measurement we should be talking about when we look at donor, the rate of donors participating. Um, participation is a number we've created in order to compare ourselves to other institutions without the context of the institution. And that's my whole, I have a whole, I could go on, we could spend the next hour, me, me just ranting about that. Let's. No, that's not. <laughs> uh, that's, maybe that's another time, right? All right. The, the second goal is to decrease the time from first gift to major gift. Um, and so interesting enough here, I found 
the length of time it takes from the first gift to a thousand, first gift to 2,500, and then on to five, 10, 25, 50, 100,000. And what I'm finding is that the duration of time from 2,500 to 5,000, five to 10, et cetera, et cetera, are all in one year increments. So we have a very long gap from first gift to 1,000, a very long gap from first gift to 2,500. But then once we get past 2,500 and the major gift process takes hold, it moves very quickly. So how do we, in my shop, shorten that front end so we're getting more quickly, at least a portion of the population more quickly to that $2,500 gift so that the great work that's happening in that range can, can happen? Which and, really implies that there's just a bunch of people hanging out in the bottom of the pyramid who belong in the middle of the pyramid. Probably. Who, in a, in a portion of them should be in the top of the pyramid, but we haven't gotten them into that part of the relationship management process that moves them more quickly there. So, um, so earlier identification, a bit more aggressive on the, the solicitation strategy. So that's, that's a key part. Um, uh, one of the big anecdotal things we've been trying to track here is the um, over solicitation of our donors. So we have, uh, so trying to reduce the saturation of solicitations to our donors. And so I'm working with some colleagues here and trying to figure out how many actual solicitations on average our donors are getting. Do you have a estimate at this point that you're comfortable sharing? Sure. I have my known universe, which at some place like Cal, the known universe is a, uh, certainly not, not much of the universe in a lot of ways. So uh, 20 solicitations per donor. And that is the known universe. So if you assume the known universe is 75%, we could say it's very easily at 30. If you assume it's at 50%, we could very easily say it's at 40 solicitations per donor on an annual basis. Um, Which means there could be some donor out there getting 100 solicitations per year. Yeah, I'm sure. I, there's a, um, I'm looking at a small list of donors who are getting north of uh, 50. I try to figure out why. <laughs> why are they... Why are they getting that many? What is it about their profile that creates that type of saturation? So we've talked um, about the goal then is sort of reducing solicitations per donor in a way that doesn't negatively impact results. Exactly right. Which, and that's the, so uh, the, la the, the number six goal is actually that um, any change is uh, budget neutral to the units around campus who count on this money. So um the 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 other another one of the goals is to is to improve the cost effectiveness of the work so how do we do this more efficiently and at a lower cost point um you know i i can get controls on what's happening in my shop but how do you influence a campus culture um we in higher ed and annual giving for sure we focus on the gross income from our um appeals and so the work in partnership with campus partners, um, particularly CFOs at different colleges and, and schools to talk about, well, here's the gross, help me figure out the net. Um, because I, I have my suspicions on what that gross net conversation might look like. Um, so that is, that's more, that's again, it's more cultural, right? It's more like, well, let's, let's talk about this in a different way. Let's not just talk about in our gross terminology, which is what we pull out of our donor database, but let's let's encourage a conversation around the net income because that is relevant. Um, and then the the final goal is a uh, working to create a coherent giving experience for annual donors. So from solicitation through uh, stewardship, how are they experiencing their giving experience? When you're in a in a culture like Cal, when you have so many um, uh, interested parties. Um, 
you, you have a lot of messages. Um, and again, we have a known universe that we are partnered in and, and working closely with, and those people are, we're super excited about those partnerships. We have an unknown universe of things that are happening outside of our, our, um, our, our site. Um, so again, if we go back to that, even on that 20, the, even in the known universe of the 20 solicitations per donor people are getting, how does that, how does that meld together to, to represent the best opportunity for someone to support Cal? And so kind of working through that conversation and, and, uh, and that one's a little more theoretical, a little harder to, to create change in, but certainly worthwhile to, to really aspire to a better donor experience. Um, and it also speaks back to some of those other things, right? How are we going to increase the number of undergrad alumni donors? How are we going to decrease the time from first gift to major gift? We have to have a more coherent um, conversation with our donors. So, so I, I developed these six goals based off of a variety of information. As part of my introductory meeting with campus colleagues, I'm going out and I'm sharing those goals with them, really just in part to make sure I'm not missing something or they don't see, they don't see the, they don't see something uh, they, they, they don't see something missing and, and to make sure that I'm being really reflective of that campus community. The second part of that thing I'm sharing is um, a kind of first cut at strategies. And so there's really just three strategies I want to kind of talk about. There's a longer list, but it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a perspective about how to approach camp cultural campus change. So, so frequently our central fundraising offices will, will think about um, creating plans for that office. So we're gonna have a plan for leadership annual giving and pipeline health. I'm gonna own it right here. But someplace like Cal, when you have, I think it's 28 leadership annual gift officers spread out throughout campus, and you have many more people who are invested in the health of the pipeline, we have to have a campus-wide framework. And so we're gonna start this spring, three campus-wide frameworks, one around leadership annual giving and pipeline health, where we have shared, we create a shared conversation. It doesn't mean we're all exactly accountable to the same goals, but out of that probably will come the requirements for a new set of reporting that will allow us all to better manage more uniformly. Um, but also, and maybe most importantly, a community of best practice. Um, how do we um, improve the efficiency and effectiveness of our leadership annual gifts officers? Are there ways or there strategies we can use to shorten the number or decrease the number of outreaches you need to do in order to get your first, get that first visit? Um, the next one is a, um, I'm calling it the digital giving evolution, uh, but it is basically, we have had big give here for about six years. We've had some crowdfunding. Um, how are we using digital platforms, uh, crowdfunding, giving days, um, texting, et cetera, to um, tell this story and engage more ambassadors in the process of, of connection and engagement and raising money. Um, and so, you know, creating a, again, campus-wide framework, surveying the environment, getting best practices, Developing our requirements for what that looks like for the future is an important part of that and how we're all pulling in the same way. And then finally, I think this is one, I, I think this is one, this is, I wish I could say this was my idea because um, I really like it, um, is looking at our young alumni programs in new ways. So, you know, so often in, in, in this work, we think about young alumni giving like mass marketing, right? So at Cal, we have 100,000 alumni who count as young alumni. And basically it's like throwing, it's like throwing like, it's like dumping water on a table, right? You do that, it just kind of goes everywhere. And the collective change is very, very small. 
So what we're doing here in this, it's, it's now been renamed as Next Generation Philanthropy. And what we've done is we've begun to identify who are those prospects who are the top tier prospects in that recent grad population. So who are the millionaires under the age of 40? Who are the children of parents who are identified with the ability to make significant donations to Cal? And then finally, who under the age of 40 has already made a gift of $1,000 or more in a year? So we're basically scaling that program from 100,000 down to, let's say 9,000. And then we're gonna direct our efforts on that 9,000 and see if we can make a change there. And then of course, we will use that to encourage other types of donors and et cetera, but really leaning into our colleagues and alumni relations to be more focused on the other 91,000 of those folks, while we focus on better results from the 9,000 who show the greatest ability to do so. So, yeah, yeah. I love that last point. And I, I think one of the, the trends or themes that we've identified in this, in this sector is that while generally one to two, maybe 3% of top of pyramid prospects are assigned to gift officers, mm -hmm. which can then result in that kind of acceleration of uh, upgrades over time and more revenue. Um, the everybody else, right? The other 97, 98% oftentimes uh, are getting 20 appeals, 50 appeals, different ways. And there aren't multiple um, approaches to have a more granular set of segments. Right. Uh, it's either all or nothing. You're in a major gift portfolio or you're not. Right. If you are, we're going to come visit you and get to know you and, and have lunch with you. If you're not, we're going to email you a whole bunch. And it's like, how do you have different approaches? And I think that's where um, your next gen philanthropy, uh, philanthropy program is one example. Some of the donor experience work going on at Oregon State University and other institutions is another example. And we are really optimistic back to what you talked about at the very beginning as a substitute student caller who had a sales background, right. um, you weren't, I imagine, when you were doing your credit card sales or doing your student calling, uh, trying to book visits. Right. We're trying to engage people and renew them and grow them uh, in a still one-to-one -one human uh, to human type uh, experience. Um, I don't think the answer in 2020 is, auto dialing call centers. I think we're moving beyond that, but I do think there's still tremendous merit in supporting more one-to-one -one engagement to help accelerate, uh, improve the donor experience in the short term, accelerate the time to the major gift, but maybe doing so without just hiring a hundred more gift officers. Right. Well, and also to your point, you know, I don't even know, I'm not necessarily that big of a fan of the, 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 the booking process, right? I think that's something that we take from, you know, in number of industries where they have an assistant who's doing the, you know, appointment booking and doing the cold calls. Right. So what I, one of the things that we're working on here, again, four months, so working on, it's a loose term, um, but we're gonna do a survey project, an ongoing rolling survey project with people that have been identified as uh, pipeline donors who have the ability to make a $100,000 gift, who have not assigned, maybe not made a gift, but are the, the key people we're gonna, we're gonna pump into our leadership annual giving program. So we're gonna do an ongoing survey project where we have a, a set of questions that are pretty, um, it's, it's, 
they're pretty dialed in on their connection to the institution, but also are really, really explicit around giving. And then let's say we get through a hundred of those and 20 of those are people who in the next 24 months can make a gift of $100,000 or more who will take the call. So instead of my leadership annual giving person who I'm paying X amount of dollars, churning through that hundred, I'm gonna have that student employee do this interview process, create a profile that becomes a contact report. So then my leadership annual giving person is reaching out to those 20 people who have already shown they have capacity, interest, and willingness. And then what's their, what's their rate of return all of a sudden like, right? We suddenly turn it from mass marketing into a much more dialed in piece. And then I also, by standardizing the, the survey, I also get data on the behaviors and interests of our pipeline and what matters to them. And so it also means the LGOs get to do what they really like and what they enjoy, spend less time prospecting. There's a really neat book in the for-profit sales world called Predictable Revenue. Uh, if yeah. you haven't checked it out or if you're familiar, yeah. uh, it, it's one of, it's kind of become just uh, the way to stand up a, uh, you know, a sales organization. And, yeah. and the whole point is people who are really good at prospecting aren't always ready to be closers and closers don't really uh, enjoy prospecting or aren't as skilled at it. And so how do you bifurcate that and, and, and sort yeah. of have a dedicated function? Um, well, you've got a lot. You've got six goals, three strategies, four mm -hmm. months in, uh, yeah. and how many alumni to uh, engage? Uh, well, it depends which how you cut it. 400 to 450,000. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we look forward to hearing how that evolves. Uh, and, uh, and certainly... <laughs> You know, one of the other themes that we've talked about is just this idea of focusing on uh, not, you know, just class years or uh, reunion cycles, but but thinking about donor interest, donor identity, profession, yeah. trying to find new ways to engage people, whether it is through one-to-one -one leadership giving or major gift fundraising or better crowdfunding or improved segmentation. Uh, obviously, you've got some great partners in Jay Dillon, in Carl Otto. You really have kind of a... a, a uh, a, a whole set of new leaders in different uh, areas of the organization. And I'm sure you're all still getting to know each other, but um, right. would love to get your quick view on that. Well, you know what I'm also, it's great that, that Carl and Jay are here, but also um, really feel fortunate to have met a lot of people who've been here for quite some time who are excited about some of these new visions. Um, you know, I think it's easy to get, let us get focused on the new faces, but the, the people have been doing this for a long time and trying to make change in an institution that's hard to make change in their counsel and their support is, is just critical to yes. us figuring out how to do this. And so, um, I, I have, I feel very fortunate that very quickly there's a number of them who, um, in very supportive ways, willing to give counsel and, and be thought partners, including of course, my, uh, of course, Lachelle, um, I, Lachelle is a part of the reason why I came here and, and then getting to see Julie Hooper do the, do the things that she does. It's just really, um, it's just really cool to be in this environment at this time. We just launched a $6 billion campaign, which is the largest, uh, we think one of the largest public higher ed campaigns without a medical center. Um, and that vision is just amazing to see that kind of come together and, and to be the part of it I get to be part of. Um, so yeah, so I, uh, it's been, it's been a great onboarding process. So very glad to hear that. It's not always the case. Um, speaking of case, outside of your uh, day, uh, work at Cal, you yeah. have been an industry uh, leader. You volunteered your time. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's upcoming 
on that front. And frankly, uh, if there are other folks listening who haven't yet gotten involved uh, with CASE or with uh, other volunteer opportunities, how important has that been uh, as you built your network and advanced your career? You know, I think that's, um, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the, thanks for the transition. Um, you know, one of the things this last year I really started thinking about is how, how are we creating a community of best practice in the world of annual giving? And how are we having those open conversations about it? And where are we doing that? And, um, and so I started to think about a different model for a case conference, a much more facilitated experience versus a lecture experience. And how then do we, how do we encourage our thought leaders in this business to show up to something like that and be part of it? Because it's only with their thought leadership do we actually enrich the conversation. Um, it happens in pockets. It happens in specialty groups. It has, happens in pay-to-play groups. Um, but how do we use CASE as a platform to really have a conversation about the future of annual giving, about how to get things done in these complicated institutions with limited resources and very little authority? Um, and so I have uh, uh, taken on um, chairing the Advanced Annual Giving Strategies Conference for CASE that happens um, the last week of April in D.C., um, and as part of that conference, I have a, I'm very fortunate to have a great uh, faculty. Uh, Christina Sebastian from Columbia is part of that faculty. Um, Peter Mose from uh, University of Utah is part of that faculty. Uh, if you know Peter, he's a great, just a great guy. Um, very funny. Uh, Maggie Utch from St. Benedict's College in Minnesota, which I don't know if you know St. Ben's or not, but is one of the, I think Maggie's doing things there that we should all be trying to do. She just happens to have a smaller population. Like what? That, I'm not familiar with that work, but what stands out? Their reoccurring gift rate is 17%. Wow. Like just, just that alone, we should all talk to Maggie, but, but there's, that's just not the, that's not even the, that's not the end of it. That's just the starting point of it. Um, so Maggie, I was so excited to have her part of it and, and representing that type of work in an institution of that size. Um, Adrian Brown at NYU is part of that faculty. Um, one of my favorite people, Jenny Cook-Smith with CASE is actually going to bring all the great data, data analytics work CASE has been doing to that, to bear on that conference. Um, Brian Gower, who um, is um, at RNL, and I think many people have now seen the Brian Gower showdown experience. And so um, we're going we're gonna to have a little of that with Brian, and, and he's part of that faculty. Um, and our hope is that what we're creating is less of a traditional I go into a classroom and I sit and I listen to someone tell me about all the great things they've done and more of an experience where they come and we have a conversation and we talk about all the great things we have done and all the ways that we approach the work to collectively, not us as a faculty, but us collectively as, as the profession. And how can we learn from each other and what are the takeaways I can learn not only from the faculty, but also from the peers I have in the room. So we're, when I recruited all my faculty members, I said, you're not doing presentations, you're having sessions and you're not a, you're not a speaker, you're a facilitator. And we're really, um, we're really trying to live by that. So um, we're doing, a, you know, we're having a, a five minutes and five slides session where any attendee at the conference can sign up to get up and talk about their best idea in five slides and five minutes. We're, we're talking about, we're gonna do a conference where we do, um, we do, uh, we talk about the data, global data around giving, both within the United States, within the, in, in the world. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to look as many interactive sessions as possible. So um, it's, 
my hope is that it'll be a, a, a very different experience. Um, and I haven't stopped talking about it as many places as I could go. So uh, hopefully it lives up to the expectations that I'm setting for folks. But, um, you know, I have found some of my closest friends in this work through attending things like this and through attending these types of sessions where I actually having interactions and being part of a conversation. Um, you know, I think about, actually I think back to my first group of um, colleagues that I really didn't work at the same institution as, but were really my closest group. There were six of us and we we're all probably within five years of graduating college and we were spread all over the country and I spoke to those people more frequently than I spoke to some of the friends I had in, in where I was living and we challenged each other and helped each other to think differently about the work even as like in our late 20s yeah. but those those six people um, really were um, key parts of my own development and who are they and what do they do now so uh, Mary Evanson is an assistant vice president at Iowa State um, University. Um, Carl Lukey um, is uh, working in a college at University of Wisconsin. Um, Devin Mathias, I believe, is now um, working for, the last I checked, he was working for a medical school. Um, and then uh, uh, the, uh, Lindsay Hearth uh, is now out of the industry. I think, I don't remember exactly what she's, I think, I think she owns a, some type of store. Uh, and then uh, Chris Harvey is in, I believe he's in Denver now, um, doing like real estate or something like that. So, um, but these are the people that I will still periodically get a text from with a joke that is from literally 20 years ago. Like um, the, the breakfast club of advancement professionals. Yeah, right. Like, uh, um, <laughs> Uh, that's not an appropriate story. Okay, so, um, but it, um, but, but those, those relationships were created at experience like this. And so what we want to try to do is create an opportunity for us to have really great conversations. Um, and not just, not just us telling you about how great, I can get up and tell you all day that I, how great I think I am, but that's not what you need. What you need is to really see who in the room can help you um, and that you can help, right? A community of best practices is about both not only being supported by the community, but also supporting the community. And so, um, so that's what we're hoping to create with it. When you talk about community, there's, there's uh, faculty, there's uh, current advancement professionals, and then there's obviously the vendor community. And yeah. I, I am curious, I'm sure over the years, you've received countless pitches and inbound emails and demo requests, probably some while we've been on this, uh, having this conversation. But I bring that up because we did get connected via McCabe Callahan yeah, at, yeah. Uh, community funded, for example, and I'm grateful for that introduction. But I, I guess I'm just curious over uh, your career, um, when you think about the vendor partner community, yeah. uh, any themes or advice you'd have uh, to, you know, for our organization or other vendors, maybe who are listening as well, of, of kind of uh, how to, you know, how to really be a helpful partner and, and how to balance, right, our own needs to grow with the realities of, uh, the context you're all operating in. Yeah. You know, I think the hard part is that I work in an industry that's very different than the industry you work in. You know, your need for revenue and your need to grow is different than my need to produce more donors in a lot of ways. And sometimes that's in direct tension, but let's be honest about it. Um, and I think that's where I see vendors really get off the path is when they're not completely transparent about the situation. Um, when, when promises are made and not followed up on or not kept, when 
um, commitments or, or, or the sales pitch and the, the, the reality are two different things. That's where it goes wrong. And when it goes right is when we're authentically in a relationship to, to have the greatest success. And it has to be mutually beneficial, of course, right? Um, the biggest thing I can pitch for people is like, I'm happy to create new knowledge with you. Um, but, um, but I think that has got to be symbiotic. And I, I know that I always feel like I want to respect your need to, um, to sustain your business. And I always want to make sure that there is that respect that I need to manage the resources of public higher education in a way that is both responsible um, to the people who provide that, but also accountable to the goals we have to achieve um, and, you know, when I see it go wrong, it's when those things get out of whack. And so, um, you know, I can, I've had, I've had many pitches, you're right. And, uh, the ones that, um, unfortunately the ones I remember and that are sometimes too frequent are the ones where I'm like, everything you just said is complete and totally like not unmarked at all. <laughs> and so, um, so when you find those vendors that you can work with authentically and have your relationship with, I know that I value them greatly. Um, and um, those partnerships are incredibly important to our success. I, I, we're higher ed, we can't actually own all the resources to do the things that an organization like yours can because you're in this business of, of figuring out the next thing while we're in the business of trying to produce results. Right. Um, good perspective for any vendor uh, who's listening and uh, certainly words that we will take to heart uh, here at Evertrue. Uh, I guess I would say as you think about, you know, kind of closing thoughts here, uh, we will certainly link to the Advanced Annual Giving Strategies Conference in late April. And uh, I am curious, you've already referenced so many people who uh, have been a a part of your career, both as mentors, as as peers, uh, as as collaborators today uh, at at Cal. When you think about the people you've enjoyed working with the most over the years, are there common traits that stand out that make a great advancement professional versus somebody who, uh, you know, is less, I don't know, high impact or memorable? I mean, what, what are the themes that really stand out among the best people you've worked with? Well, I think there's, there's kind of two separate things there. Um, there's the people I need in my life to balance me because I have a lot of ideas and they're not all great. Um, so I need those people in my world who both know how to facilitate my best me, just like I hopefully facilitating their best them, um, and that we balance each other in that way. Um, but the people that I've found to be most successful in this work are people that aren't constrained by the limitations of the current structure, but willing to step outside of that and think about what's possible and what is, what is out there. Um, <laughs> like I'm about to have like a Star Trek moment, apparently. Um, but, uh, you know, what is the possibility of the work? I think that it's so easy for us to get trapped in the confines of our political environment, our resource environment, the assumptions of what we're, we're working, that, that it prevents us from moving forward and we are stagnating in place. And um, the people that I know that have been most successful, <laughs> and maybe I'm just talking about myself, I guess, and sometimes, but I think it's true that those who are most successful can suspend the disbelief of the structure, right? They can step away from like the, the current reality to think about a future state that has nothing to do with what we're doing right now. And, and I think that's probably true in any industry. I don't think that's uniquely to higher ed, but what is unique to higher ed is the natural con- conservative nature of higher ed 
um, as far from the leading edge of change as possible. And I think that hurts us. I think that causes us to be behind. I think that has put us in the hole of millennials. I think it'll put us in the hole of Gen Z. And if we don't figure it out, we are going to have to, we're just going to be out, we have to be outsourced because someone else is going to figure it out that's outside of us. If we don't figure it out, our relevance is going to shrink. Um, and I think we have to, I think we have to really think about that. Good parting thoughts. And uh, as you kick off a $6 billion campaign with between 400 and 450,000 alumni, six goals, three strategies, you are well on your way. And uh, I really appreciate you spending time. I think for a lot of our listeners, they will never work uh, in the kind of context that you are working in just from a pure scale perspective. And so hopefully uh, they found that interesting. I certainly did. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you obviously have a lot of empathy for small shops like St. Ben's that Maggie runs uh, all the way, you know, all the way up. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll get a few folks to join you uh, at the advanced uh, annual giving strategies conference. I definitely hope to be there uh, and uh, look forward to continuing to get to know you and your team. Uh, Howard, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Brian. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks. 